Welcome, everyone, to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm so glad you're with me because I have a fascinating guest with me. Uh, Dana Ridenauer is a retired FBI agent and the author of three FBI undercover novels, Behind the Mask, Beyond the Cabin, and Below the Radar. Um, Her new book is Below the Radar, and we're going to be talking about that soon. But let me just tell you a little bit about Dana. Um, She has an interesting bio. She had been employed in a wide variety of jobs, including a first mate on a tour boat, which she tells me is her was her favorite job ever. I imagine it would be pretty much fun. She's a lawyer and she was a special agent with the FBI um, and then went through the training to become an undercover FBI agent. Um, she, her team responded after the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. Um, she has worked on a lot of different, very, very cases, and she's going to tell us a little bit about it, uh, but her focus is mainly on domestic terrorism. She attributes her law uh, enforcement career to her father and her love of books to her mother, um, which is not doesn't surprise me in the least, but my mom's the one who guided me to love books. My dad is the one who guided me to business, so I totally understand that. Um, she's an award-winning author. She lives in South Carolina with her former partner, now husband. Dana Ridenauer, welcome to Authors on the Air. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm so fascinated by your life and your career, um, not only your FBI career, but your your life as a lawyer and, and your life as a first mate on a tour boat. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself when you were growing up and about your love of books from your mom? Well, growing up, I was always, um, I loved the outdoors and uh, I and because of my mother, my mother got me reading when I was very young. And um, I just, uh, she used to take me to the, the library weekly because it, after a while it became too expensive to uh, buy every book that I wanted. <laughs> right. So we started going to the library. So we made our weekly trips to the library and I got to pick out all my books. And I think one of the happiest days of my life was when I got my own library card with my own name. And that was just an exciting time. So I've always loved reading and I can't remember not reading. I was one of those kids that you're sitting at the dinner table and I had the book in my lap and I was reading yeah. when I was supposed to be eating dinner. So right? I can't imagine not having books in my life. But I was also kind of an outdoorsy person. I liked uh, I liked sports, and um, so I spent a lot of time outside with my dad playing ball and things like that. So the the law enforcement uh, career was kind of a natural progression. He was a police officer, and so um, I watched uh-huh. him throughout his career. So yeah. that's where I think I developed the interest in law enforcement. I guess it was probably in my DNA. I think so. It sounds like it. But when you you said you worked as a fir- first mate on a tour boat, tell me a little bit about that and how did that come about? That was my all-time favorite job. I was down in <laughs> South Carolina on vacation, and we went out on this tour boat with Captain Sandy Vermont, and Captain Sandy has since passed away. But he was f- fantastic. This man could tell every ghost story, all Ooh. He knew every bird. He knew every all the stories, the history, the mystery, the romance of the Low Country. And I fell in love not just with um, the idea of the storytelling, but also with the Low Country itself. I love the South Carolina Low Country; it's my my home. But 
I, I developed that love, I think, from Captain Sandy, from all the stories that he told. So I worked for him periodically when I was young, like in college, college age. I'd go work for him for the summer. And then even after I graduated from law school, there was a job freeze. I was trying to go into the law, uh, FBI right after law school, but there was a three-year uh, job freeze. So I went back to wow. working on the boat. And he, he used to tell everybody that it was free legal advice, but you get what you pay for. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you ever end up practicing law at all? I did. I practiced a little bit in Georgetown, South Carolina. I did not want to be a lawyer. I, did, I only went to law school to get in the FBI. Back then, the FBI was recruiting lawyers and accountants. So I went to law school strictly because I wanted to be an FBI agent. I did not want to be a lawyer. <laughs> That's fascinating to me. Most lawyers I know don't want to be lawyers anymore. So, <laughs> so maybe you, you, you skipped over the painful part and went right to where your heart was calling you. Um, I did. Tell me, I did. Tell me what it was like when you got called to attend school for the FBI, whatever it's called. I don't know. Is that Quantico training or something? It's Quantico. It's the FBI mm -hmm. uh, new agents training. That was the happiest mm -hmm. day of my life when I finally got the call that said you've been accepted and you have a class date. So I just packed up everything that I owned in the back of a little Honda CRX and off to Quantico, Virginia. I went knowing that um, I gave up everything, gave up my apartment, gave up my job, and I knew, you know, I, I either had to pass and get on with the FBI or or start over. Oh, <laughs> so, and that was not an option, Monica. right? No, no, failure is not an option. And it was something that I wanted to do since I was 15 years old. So I went to Quantico um, ready, willing, and able. And it was it was great. I enjoyed the academy. A lot of people didn't like it, you know, because it was, you know, you're eating academy food and living in the dorm. Um, but I thought it was great. I, I had the time of my life. Um, so you had this image of the FBI in your mind. Did that come from books or is it strictly because of your dad being in law enforcement? I think it came from uh, both, a little bit of both. My dad, I think I developed the love of um, – solving the crime and the evidence aspect from watching him and looking at his crime scene pictures and things like that, stuff I wasn't supposed to be doing when I was younger, but I did anyway. But mm -hmm. I think probably the whole FBI thing came about because of uh, the books. I had read uh, a lot of books about the FBI. John Douglas was one of my heroes, so I'd read everything mm -hmm. that John Douglas had um, written, and that's what I wanted to do when I got in the FBI. I wanted to chase serial killers. So I thought I was going to be the next John Douglas, and I had read everything there was about serial killers, and I'd even taken um, – in college, I'd taken predatory crime and psychological courses to kind of prepare me uh, to become a profiler. Wow. So when you – What's that? I'm sorry. Go ahead. When you graduated – uh, Okay. It's from the academy – was it your intention to go into the vision that profiled serial killers and then chased after them? Was that what you wanted to do? That's what I wanted to do. But the FBI is, is kind of funny. It's, you know, you, you really don't really get to pick where you go. You go where you're ah. you So I was sent to Mobile, Alabama for my first office. 
turned out to be the perfect place for me. It was a great office. It was the second smallest field division. It was kind of a retirement office. Most of the agents were older. So when you get a brand new agent like I was, there were so many opportunities because of the age factor. You got to basically do everything you wanted because um, most of the other people were of the retirement age and they were kind of done with the SWAT stuff and, and, and search warrants and a lot of that kind of stuff. So if you wanted to volunteer to be on the evidence response team, which I did, you could do it. And so I, I think I had so many more opportunities going to a really small office like that than a lot of people did out of the academy who went to the big offices. Now, you know, it's not your typical or was not your typical career for a woman. Um, Did you get pushback from the men who were in the FBI with you? I get that question quite a bit, especially in the time of the the Me Too movement. Um, Sure. I was lucky. I don't know if it was just because I was in a smaller division or Uh if it was because um, I tend to work better with men than I do women. I don't know if it's a personality thing, but I never had any problems with that. I was accepted. I'm so glad. Um, I had a lot of, you know, I was treated just like one of the guys. I mean, um, I have thick skin, so, you know, I can take a little teasing and a ribbing, and I can give it back. And I think once the guys right. saw that, hey, I was just like them, um, I was accepted, and I wasn't treated any different because I was a woman. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. You okay there? In fact, it was kind of uh-huh. funny. Yeah, I'm coming off of a cold, so <laughs> sorry oh, about that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, but uh, my, my training agent, I had actually told him, um, it was early on, and I told him, I said, well, thank you for not treating me any different. He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you don't treat me any different when we do search warrants. You let me go in the door, you know, first and second, and you don't put me in the back of the stack. And he goes, well, kid, he goes, you haven't been around very long, and you're expendable, so we don't care if you get shot. <laughs> <gasps> what a horrible of course he was but you know what a what a thing to say that's so funny but you know reassuring let's face it you went through the same training as the male agents did so you know they that's they true. couldn't yeah you, they they couldn't really hold it against you that you used a different bathroom you know and, and right, wore some exactly. different clothes so it's interesting to me what kind of cases um did you work on that you can tell us about when you were in alabama I was on the narcotic squad, so I worked drugs and major offenses. And back in those days, the FBI was kind of divided into two sections. You either worked the terrorism um, kind of terrorism side of the house, or you worked criminal cases. So I mm-hmm. was uh, sent to the criminal side. So my whole career, I worked criminal cases and mostly narcotics and, and major offenses. Fascinating to me. Now, I ask you in the green room, and your response was very interesting. It was always my, uh, I, I thought it was, a, 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 you're telling me it was wrong, um, that FBI had to stay on United States soil and, and CIA got to go international. But you say that's not true. It's, it's not true. The FBI has offices actually all over the, all over the world. They're called legats. Um, and that's where um, it's not usually a lot of agents doing like investigative stuff. They're usually there um, working with the different countries and, and kind of doing a hand-in-hand liaison type stuff. However, I, see. I 
we do as agents sometimes get deployed uh, abroad. It is a little more rare that CIA is mostly um, takes care of outside of the United States, but this, mm-hmm. the FBI does go go abroad as well. And in fact, my partner and I worked an undercover where our American targets traveled overseas, and we traveled with them. And of course, we had country clearance from the countries that we were going through, and they knew we were there. But uh, we worked an undercover mission in the Netherlands, actually. And the third book, Below the Radar, is loosely based on that case. And it's set right there in the Netherlands, I noticed. So um, did you enjoy the other undercover work? I really enjoyed the undercover work. That was my favorite part of being an agent. I I spent probably the last 13 years involved in some way or the other in the undercover unit. And it was it was really fun. I, I never – when I went to the FBI, if you would have said, oh, you're going to be an undercover agent, I would have laughed and said, no, nah, I can't see me as an undercover agent. But that was kind of my true calling. It was what I was good at, and um, it fell into my lap. And so I, I spent the last 13 years doing undercover work and had the time of my life, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And then you and then you found your husband there. <laughs> I did. <laughs> How I did. fun we is met, that? We met. How fun um, is that? We were both. It was great. It was great. And then to work a case as a couple, playing a couple, was um, probably the greatest thrill that I had in the whole career. We had so much fun. But we were together twenty four seven, and the bureau at first didn't like the idea because they said you guys are going to kill each other. You know, a romantically involved couple playing a couple, working together, living together, spending all that time together. And uh, so we talked them into letting us do it anyway. Um, it was great. So we figured after that, hey, marriage is a cakewalk. Let's just get married. <laughs> so we did. How, what, what a great story. I love that story. Um, <laughs> so, so you retired after a little over 25 years being in the FBI? About, about, about 21 years. 21 years. Um, was it time for you to stop? Um, had you had your fill or did you decide you wanted to do something different? What was the turning point for you? It was time. I was starting to feel like um, it, it was about, I think everybody reaches a point in their life where they realize, hey, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. And um, it was it was kind of time for the next step. And my husband's a little bit older than me, and he was mandatory because the FBI is mandatory at 57. And I was um, and I was eligible at 50. And so it, mm-hmm. it just seemed to work out perfect. He was he was mandatory, was going to have to go. I was eligible to go, and I was, I was having those feelings that it was time. It was time to, you know, I'd had a great time. I had a great career, but. You know, every everything has a season, and it was time for me to move sure. on. Did your family and friends know what you did? They knew I was an agent, and my family knew when I was doing the undercover work. They didn't know specifically what I was doing, and they, like, they knew at one point I was living in California, but they didn't know any specifics, like where or what I was doing. And, you know, they were okay with it. A lot of friends didn't know, and I kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And that's where you'll find out who your real friends are <laughs> when you sure. start several years later. <laughs> right, but right. 
working one so hour is very difficult because it was the under um, it was the full time deep cover, and that's right. where you can't contact people. You when you're under, you're under, and you're under twenty four seven for the length of the case. So, well, so what was the longest case difficult. that you were under? Oh, one of one case I was under four years, and then I turned around <gasps> and did another one where I was under three. So I, I spent almost seven consecutive years undercover. Oh my lord! Yeah. I cannot even imagine. <laughs> I cannot even imagine time. with with no contact with family and friends. That's just amazing to me. So, you know, it, it's it's just the next logical step. You love thrillers and and law enforcement and reading, so you decided to turn your experiences kind of loosely into some fiction with um with agent Lexi Montgomery. So tell us how you just thought about writing and how did that start off well my mother had encouraged me to keep uh, a journal and I didn't do that when I became an agent but I did start doing it when I was working the undercover cases and I had to keep it hidden I kept it in the ceiling panel actually of my undercover apartment and in the journals I just kind of jotted down like emotions and thoughts and some of the, the emotions that I was experiencing and then when um, I was in the middle of the transfer, I came across all my journals, and I started looking through it, and I thought, well, you know, this would, I think this could make a good novel. So because of all the years that I spent infiltrating um, the domestic terrorism cells, I thought, well, I'll just write a book. It would be loosely based on real cases and real people, but I wanted to keep it real. There's so many FBI books out there, and, you know, they're just, they're just so far-fetched. And I thought, if I'm what? going to write this book, I want it's it to be, be realistic. Sure. Right. And I use so my first-hand knowledge. Well, I'm going to back up. Excuse me for interrupting. What is mm-hmm. it that other other FBI books get wrong? Oh, well, the first thing they get wrong is the whole serial killer thing. <laughs> you know, it's become a bona fide story genre for the most part. And sure. um, for the most part, very few FBI agents ever work a serial killer case. Um, everything – the primary goal of the behavioral analysis unit uh, where our profilers are is to examine the information that's submitted and provide advice to whatever agency is requesting it. And all of the books and the TVs and movies you see, you see these FBI agents running the streets chasing these, actively chasing serial killers, and none of that happens. The FBI profilers give the information to the agency that's requesting it, and it's the local police that hunt and chase serial killers. The FBI may assist, but, you know, it's not – you know, we don't have squads of FBI agents out chasing serial killers. So that's probably the number one problem. I mean, it's interesting you say that because when I think about all the books I've read, and that's a lot, that have the FBI involved, it's always the local police complaining that the FBI are coming in and taking away their case from them. And that's just not the way yeah. it is, right? Yeah. No, that's interesting. huge mistake that movies and television and books do is – have the FBI swoop in and take over the cases. That just simply doesn't happen. You know, the FBI is busy enough with all their federal cases, so why do they want to take on right. um, local stuff? And you have to stay within your jurisdiction. And homicide, for the most part, is not a federal jurisdiction. 
unless it's tied to like a bank robbery or hate crime or something like that, that's not a federal I case. See. That's the locals. Yeah. So that's the other problem. That Interesting. You see in, in books a lot. Um, tell me something else that FBI. troubles you. Tell me, tell me something else that troubles you. Well, I, I guess it's because a lot of times with the books and things, you'll see them show the FBI with all this crazy um, technology. And right. that's simply not true either. Or it's a federal, it, it's the government, it's a federal government. <laughs> Usually we right. have uh, computers that didn't half work and we didn't have all this stuff on the big screens like they show on television. And um, I mean, when I first got into the FBI and I reported to my first office, I had this antiquated Dell computer sitting on my desk and I thought somebody was, I thought it was a joke that they were messing <laughs> with the new guy. And they're like, no, that's your computer. So, oh, wow. So, yeah, so that's another that's thing. Interesting. They make it look like we can push a button and we can find out where somebody is, you know, across the country. And within right. two or three minutes, we can tie all the databases together. Oh, there's hundreds of databases. On, believe me, they don't talk. So, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> a lot of, well, there's a lot of work to research. Let's talk about I bet it is, and you know, it, you don't can't push a button and tell everybody what fiber it's from and what company makes it and everything else, right? You, you, right, exactly. <laughs> doesn't have, you know, or you know, somebody bounced a basketball in in the crime scene, and so you're going to know exactly where that basketball came from and what store it was bought at and what time. I, I, I get mm. that. I, some of it seems a little implausible to me too. Um, so let's talk about special agent. Lexi Montgomery. I'm assuming she's based on you or other female agents that you worked with. Yeah, I think um, because of the journals, I think that is that was probably the journal, the feelings, and everything that came out of the journal was was the biggest thing that formulated the character of Lexi Montgomery. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she's kind of my alter ego, I guess. Yeah, a little a younger version now. <laughs> So, will you tell listeners what Below the Radar is all about? Sure. Well, Below the Radar is Lexi Montgomery's third um, mission. Her first mission, of course, was Behind the Mask. The second one was Beyond the Cabin. So, by the time she gets to this third mission, her last assignment went horribly wrong. So, she is in need of a break, um, and she, she needs to step away from the undercover program. However, that doesn't happen. So she gets a phone call that says there's been a Dutch constable that's missing, and she, because of her background, she has the special um, the special qualities that they're looking for, and she she can hit the ground running basically. So she's not going to tell somebody no when there's a life in danger. So instead of taking the time that she's supposed to take, she's off and running again on her third mission. So she's a little fragile. And um, she's paired with an FBI, a male FBI agent for the first time. And that's kind of a joke, too, because, you know, everybody knows that the male FBI agent is based on my husband. (laughs) So they give him a little bit of grief. (laughs) And it doesn't start out so smooth. They're they're a little rough. They don't see eye to eye. And he kind of questions her loyalty. And um, there's a little bit of uh, animosity between the two agents at first. But, Interesting. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and then, there, and the then there's a there's together. there's a third there's a a spoiler guy in there too that Lexi may or may not be sympathetic to because of the group that she's 
investigating, correct? That is correct. That is correct. And so I don't, at one point in the book, I'm not even sure that Lexi really truly understands her feelings towards this character. So. Well, it's interesting to me that um, you got outstanding reviews from Kirkus. I mean, uh, it was highly recommended on Beyond the Cabin, which is your second book, or, or no, yes, second one. And um, mm-hmm. so I think that that says something about your writing career. Plus, you won a bunch of awards for your writing, too. And I was noticing that your books are highly reviewed by readers, which has to make you giddy with, with satisfaction because um, if readers are buying what you're saying, then, um, you know, that's a really good thing. Well, I mean, I you have five love, stars across um, the board. Yeah. It, 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 and I, I, and I treasure every single review, everybody that takes the time to do a review, you know, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to, and I found um, when I first started this little journey, I got called by little local bookstore um, book clubs, and they said, "Can you come do our little book club?" Mm-hmm. And there's only eight of us, so there's only ten of us, and you know they were all local, and it was within you know an hour drive, and so I wasn't going to tell anybody no. And it turns out that was the best thing I could have ever done, because those book clubs reach out, and they have other friends that are readers, and other friends, and that led to bigger gigs and bigger gigs, and um, the next thing you know, I'm. I'm launching the third book for a lunch that's, you know, 300 people sitting out there. And I look out. How the fun is that? And just, well, just about everybody out there was from a book club that I, at one point in time, had talked to. <laughs> and you, you know, like every, your, everyone's a potential friend. buyer. Yeah, everybody's yeah. a potential buyer. So, you know, that's fantastic. Um, well, and so I'm no better are, person to talk to than readers. Readers are great. I love talking absolutely. to readers. So I find it interesting that on January 21st, you will be the featured author at the Rose Hill Author Series, um, which is um, at, between the – it's a partnership with the Pat Conroy Literary Center. Pat Conroy is probably my favorite low country writer, one of my favorite writers of all time. And his wife and I are friends, and I'm actually going to see her this weekend when she's down here in Florida on, on book tour. So, you know, oh, I think wonderful. there's, we're all, oh, yeah, Cassandra is fabulous. So we're, we're all connected in some way. Um, mm-hmm. um, congratulations on your success. And I hope you have fun at that, that event. Um, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're recovering from a cold, but I, I wonder if I can ask you just like, I call them final five, five quick questions and five quick answers. Sure. Okay. Well, I also call it stump the author, but <laughs> so we'll see. I like five quick questions better. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> so, um, whose book is on your nightstand right now? Um, I have to think because I'm reading on a Kindle, and actually, it's uh, Cassandra's book. Uh, is it really a story? Yeah, yes. it's uh, Tell Me a Story. It's her her uh, memoir that she wrote about her yes. life with Pat yes. Conroy. So, yes. yep, that one is the she's one lovely. I'm currently reading. Yeah, she's lovely. She's a lovely lady, and, you know, it was devastating to me when Pat Conroy died because um, oh, I so love his, I love his book so much. Um, um, who, who gave you the best advice about your writing career, and what was it? Um. 
probably Mary Alice Monroe. Yeah, another great low country writer. Yes. (laughs) She's fabulous. And basically, um, you know, she said, told us don't give up. Just plug, keep plugging away. Write every day. And, um, you know, it'll happen. And it might, you know, it's going to take a while. You know, if you look back at Mary Alice's books, you know, she wrote a lot of books before the household name. Um, Oh, absolutely. So probably probably Mary Alice Monroe just – Another lovely lady. Another lovely lady. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I noticed on Amazon when they say, you know, if you like this author, you'll also like. And and there was Mary Alice Monroe, uh, Lindy Walker, uh, uh, Danielle uh, Gerard, who's also a friend of mine. So you know, you've 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 got a lot of people that um, I think are absolutely wonderful on this list. what is something we'd be surprised to learn about you? Let's see. I'm addicted to fishing. I mean, just are you really addicted to fishing? I can't stop well, myself anymore. <laughs> all you have to do is go look at your Facebook page, and you will see that you're always <laughs> showing your fish on your Facebook page. <laughs> I never thought when, that would have happened. I mean, my husband bought me a fishing pole, and I haven't been inside since. <laughs> that's so funny. I think that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> When someone asks you what your profession is, what do you tell them? Well, I tell them I'm a retired FBI agent and an author. <laughs> Very good. Uh, be- uh, because usually if I just say author, they'll, they'll walk away. But if I throw in the retired FBI agent, that catches their attention. <laughs> Something they want to hear go. more. That's interesting. It's very interesting to me. In an alternate universe where there's no FBI and no writing, what would you want to do? What would be like a really cool thing for you to do? That's a. I would either be a marine biologist or uh, a Hollywood movie maker. I'd love to direct movies. So I well, know hot damn. Too far ends <laughs> the spectrum, but it would be one or the other. I'd either be a marine biologist or I would be a Hollywood movie director. Oh my goodness gracious! You're such an interesting woman. You really are. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I'm so. I'm so glad we got to talk today, Dana. Uh, my guest is Dana Reidenauer in the event that you have did not uh, hear in the beginning. Her new book is called Below the Radar. Since Dana is a retired special agent of the FBI, her books are very authentic. And so um, she doesn't make the mistake and have you rolling your eyes that a lot of other books will. I highly recommend that you go and check her out. Would you give us your website, please? It's www.danaridenar.net, and it's D-A-N-A-R-I-D-E-N-O-U-R.net. Very good. And, Dana, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the show, and I hope you get over your cold real soon so that you can go fishing every day. Or do you fish even when you're sick? (laughs) Oh, I'm fishing with a cold. <laughs> there you go. To the fish. <laughs> okay, there you go. There you go. I want to thank everybody for listening. Dana, for you being here, and thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you all later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.